we need to be clear in our understanding that the abstentions that James is proposing at the Jerusalem Council for the Gentile Christians of his day, they're not intended as permanent rules for us. He simply wants these new Gentile believers in Christ to demonstrate love to those Jewish people that they would come in contact with so as not to offend their sensibilities and not to hinder the spread of the gospel. Well, to be more precise, three of the four abstentions are meant that way, but one is a serious, don't ever do this kind of statement. Pastor Steve Kreloff will tell us about that today on Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve serves as the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today he's concluding another message in his series from Acts chapter 15 about the Jerusalem Council, the most important church council of them all. It's extra important because it answers for all time the most important question of them all. What is necessary to be saved? We've already seen that the apostles were unanimous in declaring that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. In fact, faith in Jesus' work on the cross for us is the only basis of salvation. But while James agreed completely, he also had some cautionary comments for the Gentile believers. Here's Pastor Steve now to tell us about them. And what he does is he proceeds to recommend that the council write a letter to these Gentile Christians, giving them some practical advice about how to conduct themselves amongst Jewish people in their society, both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. And specifically, what he does is advise these Gentiles to abstain from certain practices that might offend Jewish people. Now, this is where we left off last week, and so we pick things up in verse 20. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, James mentions here four practices that he feels the Gentile believers of his day should abstain from. Before we look at these four practices, I want you to see the reason that James gives for making this recommendation. And that's all he's doing is making a recommendation to the council. They will take heed to his recommendation, but at this point, he's making a recommendation. And here's the reason why. Verse 21. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, James says here that the reason that he doesn't want Gentile Christians to be involved in these four practices has to do with the fact that these practices are forbidden by Moses. That is to say, the Mosaic law forbids them. And since Jewish people are aware that they are forbidden because why? The law of Moses is read every Sabbath or every Saturday in synagogue services all over the world. So for Gentile Christians then to disregard these prohibited practices would be to needlessly offend Jewish people, which would hinder their witness to those Jews who are unsaved, as well as hinder their fellowship with those Jews who are saved. You see, having already decided that Jewish people not trouble Gentiles by demanding that they be circumcised, James now is also concerned that the Gentile believers not trouble Jewish people by the way that they behave. And so he proposes that the council write the Gentile Christians a letter telling them to abstain from these four 
very specific practices. Number one, practice number one, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, meaning that they should not eat any food that had been offered to an idol. An idol is a false god. You see, in the ancient world, pagan Gentiles would worship their false deities by ritual ceremonies that involved offering food that would be set before an idol. But when the ceremony was over, the pagan priests would then take the food that had been offered to an idol and they would bring that food to the marketplace of their town and sell it and make a profit. And it's this food that had once been offered to an idol that James is saying that Gentile Christians should abstain from eating. Now, very clearly, the Old Testament forbids any kind of idolatry, which is the worship of a false god. At the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, we read this in Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, based on these words, it's very clear that God forbids all forms of Idol worship. However, and it is a big however, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about eating food sacrificed to an idol. Just that the worship of an idol is wrong. And so the reason for James recommending that Gentile Christians abstain from foods that have been offered to an idol wasn't because it violated any Old Testament law, because it really didn't. Nor was there anything inherently wrong. With the food itself, it was perfectly good food and somebody needed to eat it or it would go to waste. Now, the eating of foods offered to an idol, that was a huge issue in the early church. Should they eat such food or abstain from it? And it was a huge issue largely because the Bible was silent on the subject and therefore believers needed some direction as to what to do. That's exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. In these chapters, the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to stress that eating food that had been offered to an idol was an issue that wasn't commanded by God, nor was it condemned by God in Scripture, so that it was left up to an individual believer to decide if he was going to eat this food or not. And since scripture was silent on the issue, the determining factor as to whether or not to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol was to be based upon a believer's conscience. That is your inward moral monitor. You see, some Christians in that day and age would have no problem eating this food, meaning that their conscience wouldn't bother them at all. And so they felt free to eat it. If they ate it, that's fine. It's good food. But other believers, based on their background, based on their upbringing, would not have the freedom in their conscience to eat any food sacrificed to an idol. Why? Because it felt to them that they, that they were now going backwards and participating in idolatry, their former way of life. And so Paul makes it clear that they should, if you feel this way, 
then abstain. Because one should never, ever, ever violate your conscience. And so we read 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 8. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Paul is simply setting forth here the principle that some believers have a weak conscience when it comes to anything associated with their past life of idolatry. And so they should not eat any food that had been sacrificed to an idol because that would, he says, defile their conscience. But Paul makes it clear that no matter what they choose to do, eat the food or abstain, the fact remains that as far as the food itself is concerned, it makes no difference to God if it was offered to an idol or not. It doesn't make a believer more spiritual if he eats Food that had been sacrificed to an idol or if he refrains from this food. And the point that James at the council is now making to the Jerusalem council is that even if a Gentile Christian has a clear conscience to eat food sacrificed to an idol, he should abstain from it for the time being. Why? Because it would be offensive to the Jewish people of that day who abhorred anything associated with idolatry and therefore it would just show a lack of love, a lack of sensitivity towards them. That's the first principle. That's the first thing James does abstain from. Second practice James proposes that Gentile believers abstain from is fornication, meaning sexual immorality, which includes any kind of sex outside of legitimate marriage as prescribed by Scripture. Now, unlike abstaining from food offered to an idol, immorality, that's not a conscience issue left up to individuals to decide what to do. It's clearly forbidden in Scripture. Now, the most likely reason that James included sexual immorality in this list is simply because sexual sins were such a, an integral part of pagan worship ceremonies with temple priestesses serving as prostitutes that James wants Gentile believers to be especially careful to avoid this sin. In other words, it, it had been such a normal part of their pre-conversion lives that they need to pay special attention that they don't fall back into it. That's the second thing they're to abstain from. Third practice that James proposes that Gentile Christians abstain from is eating food that had been strangled. And this is a reference to a law in the Old Testament, forbidding Jewish people from eating any meat from an animal that had been killed by being strangled rather than being properly butchered and its blood completely drained. Likewise, the fourth practice that they were to abstain from was the consuming of any blood from an animal because the Mosaic law forbid this. In other words, all the blood had to be drained from an animal before it could be eaten, so no rare steaks. That's really the thought here. Now, listen closely, because I don't want anyone to be confused and misunderstand what James is saying. These prohibitions that James is recommending for the Gentile believers of his day, apart from abstaining from sexual immorality, all these others, they're not intended to be binding rules for us to live by today. 
The Bible doesn't command us to obey the Old Testament ceremonial laws given to Israel, only the moral laws that are revealed in the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments reflect God's unchanging standards of holiness. Therefore, with the exception of sexual immorality, which is a moral absolute, the thing that James is speaking about, note this, they're considered what we call today liberty issues, issues that are neither commanded or condemned for us in Scripture. In other words, these are like the the question of eating food sacrificed to an idol. It's up to your conscience to tell you whether you can do it or not. And with the liberty issue, and I'm going to explain this because a lot of Christians do not understand liberty issues. With a liberty issue, there are always two biblical principles that guide us in choosing if we have the freedom to do a certain activity or not. Principle number one, which I've already mentioned, is to ask yourself the question, is my conscience clear so that I can do this activity and not feel that I am sinning against God? Listen to what Paul said in Romans 14. Verses 22 and 23. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, if you can do an activity in good faith, Paul says, being convinced in your heart that this activity isn't condemned by your conscience, then go ahead and do it. You're free to do it. But if you have doubts in your heart about this activity and your conscience is bothered by the thought of doing what you are thinking of doing, then don't do it. Because while the activity may not be in and of itself sinful, if you think it's wrong, if you think it's wrong to do this, then it is sin to you. So abstain from it. A good example, a more modern day, contemporary example of an issue like this is drinking an alcoholic beverage. The Bible does not forbid the use of alcohol. It just forbids getting drunk with alcohol. Now, most evangelical believers around the world, and trust me, I have seen this, have absolutely no problem with drinking wine or beer. They have no problem with it. But there are many, many American Christians who grew up hearing that the use of alcohol, all of it, is just wrong. And so, their conscience now forbids them from drinking any alcohol, and therefore, they should not drink. They should not drink. Because it's always wrong to violate your conscience. As Paul says, if you can't do it in good faith before God and you have doubts in your heart about this activity being right, then it would be sinful for you to do this. That's principle number one. Don't do it if your conscience bothers you. Your conscience can eventually become enlightened. But if your conscience at this point bothers you, don't do it. The second principle to guide us when it comes to a liberty issue is that while your conscience may not be bothered by doing a certain activity, if you know 
of someone else, Christian or non-Christian, whose conscience believes that this particular activity is sinful, then you should abstain from doing this activity while you are in their presence. And the reason for this is because you're, with a non-Christian at least, this would hurt your testimony. It would hurt your witness to them about Christ. And with a Christian... It might cause him or her to stumble in their relationship with Christ by emboldening that person to do something that his conscience would be bothered by doing. But in seeing you do this certain activity, he assumes that it's all right for him to do the same thing. But it's not all right for him to do the same thing because his conscience isn't clear on this activity as yours is. And therefore, it would be sin for him to participate. And in doing this, he would stumble, meaning he would fall in his relationship with Christ. He would sin. This is what Paul teaches in Romans 14.21. He said, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So. For example, if your conscience is clear about drinking a glass of wine, having some beer, then feel free to do it. The Bible does not forbid this. But just don't drink it in front of someone who you know thinks that wine or beer drinking is wrong. Otherwise, you are not walking in love towards that person because you are thinking of only yourself and what you want to do and not the spiritual welfare of another person. And that is the priority, not you, not me, not what we have the freedom to do. So we need to be clear in our understanding that the abstentions that James is proposing at the Jerusalem Council for the Gentile Christians of his day, they're not intended As permanent rules for us. He simply wants these new Gentile believers in Christ to demonstrate love to those Jewish people that they would come in contact with. So as not to offend their sensibilities and not to hinder the spread of the gospel. And appropriately, that brings us to our time now of observing the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper addresses both issues that James brings up in his speech. The Lord's Supper is the time, and we specifically remember Christ's death on our behalf, and the great truth that he has saved us by his work on the cross and nothing else, and that is the heart of the Jerusalem Council. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But the Lord's Supper also reminds us that we are one body, One body, folks, of believers who have come together to remember our one Lord and to celebrate our one common salvation in him. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. He says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What Paul is saying is that when we partake of the cup in the Lord's Supper, which is a symbol of Christ's blood shed for us, and when we partake of the bread, which is a symbol of his body being given for us in his death, we are celebrating the common salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul speaks of one body made up of many believers. And folks, because we are one body, We are to show love for one another, and that involves refraining 
from any activity which would cause a fellow believer to stumble in their Christian walk. So, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, I want you to examine your heart to see if you've been walking in love towards other Christians or if you've been selfish in your dealings with them. So, if you have the attitude that you can do whatever you want to do without any consideration for others, the attitude that says, well, you know what? That's their problem. They just need to get over it. Then you're not walking in love, and that is sin. Repent of that, or don't take the Lord's Supper. need to ask yourself these questions. Have I esteemed others more important than myself? Am I harboring any grudges against someone else? Any ill feelings, a lack of forgiveness? Have I said anything harsh to others? Anything offensive? Have I been selfish, self-focused, inconsiderate, insensitive to others? If so, then repent and get it right with the Lord and with people. Remember the cross of Christ. Remember your salvation and the fact that you are part of his one body so that you treat each member of that body with love and respect. Let's bow for prayer and then I'll ask our gentlemen to pass out the elements. But folks, keep in mind, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I urge you, come to Him. Come to Him. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Trust Him alone for your salvation. You can't get to heaven by anything you've done. It's not Christ plus you. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Christ. Then the cross is a mistake. It's either all of the cross or none of the cross. For by grace, you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, Paul said, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Father, prepare us now. Prepare us to partake of your son's supper, Lord, where we not only remember that he died for us, that he saved us by his grace, by that awful, hideous, horrific death on the cross in which not only did he experience the physical agony of crucifixion, but he experienced alienation from you. That alienation so that we will never be alienated from you. Lord, help us to remember that, but also to remember to be loving, to be kind, to never have that attitude of get over it. It's your problem. No, it's our problem. Help us to walk in love towards others. Help us to put aside our freedoms for the sake of others in the body of Christ, for the sake of others who are not in the body of Christ, so we wouldn't hinder the gospel. Life is not about us. It's about glorifying you. So we pray, Lord, that if there needs to be repentance in our hearts and our lives, that you'll, you'll lead us to do that. And now, Lord, we partake Help us to do it with hearts that truly remember you and truly give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you want to know more, I'll have a phone number for you in just a moment. Our human pride pushes us to come up with ways to deserve eternal life. But the Bible makes it abundantly and repeatedly clear that pride and salvation are mutually exclusive. It's only by God's grace that we receive forgiveness for our sins. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
For information about Lakeside or to ask for counsel and trust in Christ, call the office at 727-441-1714. And you can also ask for a free audio CD with the entire message that Pastor Steve just finished. Ask for message number 64, The Jerusalem Council, Part 4. The phone number again is 727-441-1714. Or if you're just curious about Lakeside, stop in at the website, lakesidechapel.com. Besides the audio CD, another listening option is the audio library we keep at our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can listen again to today's class or any of our previous broadcasts by browsing to the message archive. And there's a giving page where we make it simple and safe to give online to help keep Verse by Verse on the air. We're grateful for the generous listeners who make this radio Bible class possible. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. I hope you can join us for the next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve begins his final message in this series that answers the most important question of all. What is necessary for salvation? Salvation.